Welcome to the Help Yourself podcast, where we take a critical look at self-help and self-improvement literature. My name is Joshua Wolf, and I am a master's level counseling intern from Oklahoma City University. My name is Josh Buss, and I am also a master's level intern from Oklahoma City University. Today, we're going to be taking a look at The Consolations of Philosophy by Alain de Botton, and we are going to see what he has to say about life, and uh, he takes a look at life through the lens of philosophy and six major philosophers uh, from history. And Josh, uh, tell us a little bit more. All right. That pronunciation was on point. Thank you. Josh. Yeah. Happy birthday, by oh, the way. Thank you very much. You're, you're welcome. Yeah. Do you have uh, any big plans? Uh, yeah. Well, I think some uh, friends and I are going to go have some pizza tonight, maybe go out for drinks afterwards. Uh, hopefully not spend $30 on a glass of bourbon as somebody. Scott. Scotch? Oh, that yep. was scotch. Yeah. Yeah. $30 is a little out of <laughs> my priority. <laughs> $30 a glass of bourbon is ridiculous. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I don't think we'll be going back there for drinks anytime soon to one undisclosed restaurant. Uh, however, uh, here in Oklahoma City, there are several good um, drink restaurants, and I think we're going <laughs> to hit maybe up, uh, hit one of them up for a couple of drinks. I, I feel like um, the context of being in a cheesecake factory led me astray yeah, in ordering no, that, that glass. No, I did not high, expect high cheesecake, cheesecake factory. Low-cost low drinks. No, it was not. They make up the cost. They uh, subsidize their cheesecake with their drinks. Right. All right. Well, that sounds like a fun time. Yeah. So, The Constellations of Philosophy by Alain de, de Botton. Mm -hmm. Um, so Alande Botan is a author who's written several books. I've read, I think three of his books. Um, other ones I've read are the art of travel, uh, the pleasures and sorrow of work and believe I read status anxiety as well. And so okay. he's kind of a popular philosopher. I'd say that all his books have kind of a philosophical bent. You read the pleasures and sorrows of work I did as well. Yeah, so that was kind of a philosophical look at work. Would yeah. you agree with that? I would. And you know, he you said he's a, a philosophical writer. He's he's also a, a TED Talk speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, he tends to come out in pop culture, um, and he's been on PBS. Uh, he had a PBS series, in fact, where I believe they took the concepts from this book and uh, did them episode by episode. I did not uh, know about looking that. Looking at each one of them, yeah. And so uh, he has written... Much he has um, a great um, speaking personality. He talks uh, and gives talks a lot. Uh, my understanding is he grew up in the Oxford chain of schools from uh, early boarding school, uh, high school that feed into uh, Wharton College, whatnot, um, and then ended up going for a PhD in French philosophy, which he actually, to my understanding, stopped pursuing. Uh, to continue work more on his his writing uh, and his work. Yeah, and he kind of has an interesting background. His uh, father was a Sephardic Jew in Egypt um, and became a investment figure and sold his business around 2000 for something like 270 million pounds which Alain de Botton says that he did not receive any of that and that he makes his living off of 
his books. He sold his first book, which isn't one of those I mentioned. Uh, I think it's on, on love. It's something about love. Uh -huh. Um, that book sold a ton of copies and he was telling his dad about, about this. And, uh, his dad was not impressed with the million dollars that he made off of the sale of the book. Uh, so he's kind of an interesting guy. I think his mother's Swiss, maybe. Uh -huh. yeah. To my understanding, yeah. yeah, he he was born in Zurich, Switzerland, but very early the family uh, immigrated to London where he was raised uh, as a young Londoner. Yeah, so like Josh mentioned, this book, The Constellations of Philosophy, takes a look at um, it's kind of a uh, how to have a good life through the lens of six different philosophers. Uh, Josh, you said that you read some professional reviews of this book, and they were not, these, these professional reviewers were not extremely interested or extremely impressed with his grasp of philosophy or his explanation of philosophy or... Yeah, I think the, the issue that a lot of the reviewers that I read who disagreed with um, his writing in the book was it, for someone to take philosophy, and I think the people who wrote this were academic, philosoph uh, philosophically minded people, and said, you just watered it down way too much. There's, there have been attempts to bridge the gap and draw a string between pop culture and uh, modern understanding of life and philosophers of old and their explanations of life and to draw that string between the two. And uh, I believe one reviewer said, I'll just cut the string. He went through and may have watered it down. And this is my words, watered it down a bit too much. Uh, and they don't like how he over pop culturalized or, uh, they just don't like what he did with philosophy. Uh, and, it may, they may like other books of his, but for the reviews of this book, um, there were quite a few critical um, reviews. Gotcha. Yeah, so someone who's tried to read some philosophy, I appreciate it being watered down for me. Um, I think that, that it, the uh, number of people who can get a lot out of, out of many of these philosophers is pretty limited. I think there's a place for this pop, pop philosophy. So this uh, is, this is mama bird chewing up some, uh, phil philosophy worms sure. and regurgitating them watered down <laughs> that, to you so you can digest them. That's one way to put it. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a definitely a baby bird when it comes to philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was the second time that I've read this book. This book's actually pretty meaningful to me. The first time that I read it was a difficult time in both my wife and my lives. It was a time when we were very strongly united as a couple, but we had stuff going on outside of that. Uh -huh. And whenever I brought this book up to her, I recalled during this time reading the entire book to her in bed at night she does not remember this book at all she fell asleep about two lines in <laughs> right um so i think that uh, i think what happened was i read her some passages oh, okay. of this book i don't think that i read the entire book to her as we uh we laid in bed in this romantic um 
us against the world kind of scenario that I had imagined. Chapter one, a few years ago during a bitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this, this book has some level of emotional, emotional valence yeah. for me in that I found it helpful. I found some of the topics very helpful during this difficult time. Okay. And I appreciated the, I, I like history. I like, um, culture i liked learning some of the details that he adds in here um i don't know how accurate they are or how watered down they are but i found them found them interesting and i found the conclusions or the the ideas um that he drew from these philosophers on how to live a a good life mm -hmm. to be interesting. Um, I think this book is different from the last two books that we've reviewed in that Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People was very much about getting along with other people and that being a, a key to the success in life. Correct. And then the uh, Hulverson book, nine, is it Nine, nine Things? Successful people do differently was very focused on setting and achieving goals. Correct. Both of those, uh, definitely Halverson more than than Carnegie, were value independent. Um, they could be used to achieve success or goals, whether your intentions were are malevolent or, or 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 good so it doesn't matter why you're using them they're skills uh skills that can be developed and grown yeah so i think like how how to fr win friends and influence people could be used by con man yeah. to be a successful con man and halverson's book on um nine things successful people do differently could be used by a dictator to commit genocide yeah right um it doesn't matter. This book's very different. Um, I guess that's both, to me, a strength and a weakness okay. because he's very much advocating certain values. And maybe as we go through this, we can talk about where those, those kind of biases come through and if that's really helpful to everyone. You know, uh, this book made me think about one of the concepts – uh, and one of the things that uh, therapists, uh, as both you and I are uh, hoping to be soon, um, one of the things that some therapists will do will recommend books to clients as a, a bibliotherapy. Um, read this book and um, take in some of the concepts that it teaches um, or not. Um, I think for some people... Who, who like reading and enjoy reading and are able to get concepts from reading. It can be good homework for people. Um, do you think that this book for certain clients would be worth reading? Possibly. If, <clears throat> if they were people who had expressed a desire to uh, manifest the values that are in this book. Because so uh, otherwise it would be important imposing those values on them? I, I think so. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, we can start as examples. So the 
The philosophers covered in these are Socrates, Seneca, Epicurus, Montaigne, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche. 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 Yeah. <laughs> um, so Socrates. So let's use Socrates okay. as an example. So what I got from the section on Socrates and the chapter is so as this book is is titled it's the consolations of philosophy okay right so these are consolations for difficulties actually i think one of them is the consolations for difficulties but the socrates chapter is consolations for unpopularity or being unpopular one of those things okay right and the lesson that is derived or from the life of socrates is that he was a person that at the end of his life was very unpopular. He was sentenced to death for um, basically acting against the culture and the the powers, the political powers of the Greek of Athens uh -huh. that he was in. <clears throat> and so his consolation is supposed to be that he upheld his values, right? And so whether he is even though he he's and he did this to the end even though he's being executed um which is the height of unpopularity he's been convicted by a jury of his peers he upheld his values to the end and his values were seeking and speaking truth okay right not accepting the um the the common sense or the shared wisdom of his society. So the part about being consoled for unpopularity and knowing that you upheld your values, I, I like that part, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and maybe that's the main point of, of what Baton is, is is trying to say here the idea that Socrates value of basically causing conflict in his society is not something <clears throat> that's universally trans transferable. That's okay. a very Western ideal. Okay. There's other cultures that value harmony more. <clears throat> right? Like, um, Many East Asian cultures value harmony over individualism and and doing what you want despite the consequences for society. Okay. So in recommending to somebody whose cultural beliefs and value system uh, ran contrary to this, um, it may be seen as trying to change them or more judgmental if we recommended this. Uh, but for somebody who, who ascribes generally to, to Western values, um, to that, that fits in with the system that the author, uh, is trying to express, this may be, um, something that can help them feel more at ease with their place in the world or, um, console them be a consolation to um some of the woes they have that they're not fitting in uh, or um they're con uh, that they're feeling contrary to what's going on in their life 
Yeah, possibly, okay. as long as they're they're living their values and that that's maybe the reason that they are not fitting into their culture. So someone who's maybe having difficulties because they grew up in a family of criminals, but they're not interested in participating in that criminal lifestyle, and they're still they're still feeling alienation from yeah. their families and their friends. Yeah. Maybe there's some consolation that this person is upholding their values. That's not <clears throat> the direct thing that's, that's said in that. That would need some interpretation for some people because that's not what Socrates' values were. Yeah. It's just that he was upholding his personal values. Yeah, and just being being able to very generalize and extrapolate what's relative to to your life from uh, the text, and not take it at face value. Yeah, and I think that that's. I, I mean, I really had to closely read, especially with the last three, the more modern philosophers, to figure out exactly what he was saying. I felt like the three ain't the three philosophers of antiquity. Um, Socrates, Epicurus, and Seneca, it was pretty straightforward what they were trying to say. But the last three were more difficult for me to wrap my head around. So I'm glad that De Botan watered down that philosophy. I can't imagine reading Nietzsche, 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 Nietzsche or Schopenhauer yeah. and deriving the, the lessons that that he did from from those yeah you know you and i were talking before the podcast uh about the way we think the way we communicate and how we may be a little more cerebral about things than than um, than other people but these philosophers can be very cerebral can be right. very heady lofty ideas that um you really have to chew on them for a while. And that's why there are PhDs in philosophy. Right. <laughs> so, so that you can really take your time to digest these things. Yes. Uh, so thank you for um, dumbing it down to at least a master's level uh, uh, understanding. And um, Josh here and I will um, try and dumb it down even further. Right. For our listeners. Yeah, because we know our listeners are dumb. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining us here on the Help Yourself Podcast, where we like to insult and demean you. Right. So, Schopenhauer is hilarious. Um, yeah, it was a real comedy genius of his time. No, he is. Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer is, is funny, right? So, Schopenhauer's was consolation for a broken heart. Hey, so um, Schopenhauer was this guy who was super pessimistic and super cranky, and he um, had all kinds. I'm going to just flip through here. here. Here's one. In 1809, somewhere between 1809 and 1811, while Schopenhauer was studying at the University of Göttingen, he decided to become a philosopher, and he said, life is a sorry business. I've resolved to spend it reflecting upon it. <laughs> Schopenhauer had all kinds of cheery things like that. 
Um, only the male intellect, clouded by sexual impulse, could call the undersized, narrow-shouldered, broad-hipped, and short-legged sex the fair sex. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, that one can be serious about philosophy has a rule not occurred to anyone, least of all to a lecture on philosophy, just as no one as a rule believes less in Christianity than does the Pope. Uh, oh, I like this one. All right, so this is kind of gets to the heart of De Botton's um, lesson they drives from Schopenhauer. Okay. So at the age of 43, living in Berlin, Schopenhauer meets Flora Weiss, a beautiful, spirited girl who had just turned 17. During a boating party in an attempt to charm her, he smiles and offers her a bunch of white grapes. Grapes. Flora later confides in her diary, I didn't want them. I felt revolted because old Schopenhauer had touched them, and so I let them slide quite gently into the water beside me. And as a person... Only one year less than Schopenhauer was at that age. Abject to his being called old man Schopenhauer. <laughs> but at 18 from, years old. From a 17 year old. From a 17 year old, that's understandable. Now that uh, I'm 32, I'm feeling older and older. Right. I found a white hair today. <laughs> yeah. um, Schopenhauer leaves Berlin in a hurry. Life has no genuine intrinsic worth, but is kept in motion merely by want and illusion. Right. So Schopenhauer is a super pessimistic guy. The lesson that De Botton drives from him is on broken heart. Schopenhauer never does marry. Um, he does get close to another woman when he's older. It turns out she's more, she's interested in him only for his intellect. <laughs> <laughs> um, she does not want to spend her. She's just real into philosophy. Okay. <clears throat> she does not want to spend her life with him. And he, his consolation for a broken heart is that even though he has had no success in love, that he's not deterred by it because he believes that, that having a romantic relationship with another person is the most important thing in the human experience, whether or not he's been successful in it. This man who, who was extremely pessimistic in every other area of his life um, somehow accepts that this endeavor is worthwhile whether or not he's able to, whether or not he's able to fulfill it. It's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Yeah, may, maybe. Okay. Um, right. I, I, I don't know that. Again, I'm going by De Botton and my understanding uh -huh. of what De Botton was saying. I don't know that he would have even, they, it would have even been dependent upon having loved and lost for love to have value. But of course it's consolation for a broken heart. Yeah. Right. So he did love and love lose. And lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So okay. yeah. Schopenhauer is a interesting 
interesting guy. Well, talk to me about one of the other philosophers and, and what you were able to get. Okay. I, I think Seneca was uh-huh. my, my favorite. I, I like the Stoics a lot, and I'm hoping that we at some point review Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, uh-huh. which is uh, he Marcus Aurelius was heavily influenced by Seneca. Mm-hmm. Wait, I don't think that's right. I think Seneca came after Marcus Aurelius. I'm sure that Seneca came after Marcus Aurelius okay. because Seneca lived during the decline of war of Rome. He was an advisor to Nero at one point. Mm-hmm. I think Marcus Aurelius was kind of at the height of Rome's mm. Rome's power. So that would have been beforehand. And so he was an advisor to Nero. Um, he was eventually executed on the orders of Nero when Nero was sounds like having some 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 problems. Uh, Marcus some, Aurelius was no Nero. Nero. Nero, Nero was having problems. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Marcus Aurelius was before oh, okay. before this time. So Seneca would have been influenced by Marcus Aurelius. Okay. So. Um, Seneca's, so the Stoics are, they're, the way that I understand their central tenet of philosophy is that you shouldn't be disappointed by things that happen because you should know that they're going to happen. Right, that you should be prepared for everything that's bad that's going to happen in life. You know that your loved ones are going to die, right? and so there's no reason to there, there's no reason to go through the type of torment that we go through because we know these things. So it's a really broad application of shit happens. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, I, I don't think that it's maybe cynical in the way that, that shit happens implies. Yeah. It's, it's something that, that there, there's no, there's just no, and this is of course d- difficult if not impossible to uh, apply at all times, but we know what's going to happen during life. We know that there's going to be pain. Yeah. And the Stoics would argue that there's no, there's no reason to make that worse by fighting against it, by going through <clears throat> the, the psychological torment of getting, getting mad at it. And they talk about, being angry at inanimate objects and animate objects. And so an example of an inanimate object is being upset at an animate object is your fork falls off the table. Mother. Right. And they would argue that's ridiculous to get upset at this fork in the way that some people do the, 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 the action of this fork falling off the ter- the table. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's just a ridiculous 
thing to do. Okay. And that we should develop the skills to deal with the, the difficulties of life. And he embodied this in the way that he dealt with Seneca, embodied this in the way that he dealt with his ultimate execution at the hand of Nero. He didn't, did not throw a fit about it. Yeah. He, he knew that this was a possibility. He knew that Nero was insane. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I like, I don't feel like I'm, I'm giving a good description of what the Stoics believed. Um, but I, I really like, I like them. I, I think that they, it, re, it reminds me, Stoicism and Buddhism seems to me to have a lot of commonalities. And I think Stoic uh, as a descriptor has become commonplace, um, at least in literature, of describing someone who um, has a certain resignation to them, that they are um, comfortable with the suffering. They know they're going to go through something. And so the the general sat on his horse looking over the war with a stoic expression. Uh, he was resigned to um, know that soldiers were going to die. This was going to be a hard time. Um, there was going to be suffering, but um, worrying about it more than was logical was irrational, and it couldn't, cha it couldn't help him to worry more. And so uh, I think that it's made its way into common parlance uh, in a, a pretty good way. Uh, so you talked, you said Seneca was one of your favorite, uh, sections in this book. Yeah. And let, let me, let me just, so one of the quotes from Seneca, <clears throat> no promise has been given you for this night. No, I have suggested too long a rest respite. No promise has been given even for this hour. Right. So I think the essence of stoicism, as I understand it from this book is living in the moment, being in the present, mm -hmm. not ruminating over the past or worrying about the future. And you feel that's what the author was trying to convey with this this chapter? Yes, yeah. The, this section is consolation for frustration. Okay. Right? And so I, I like that message. That, yeah. Um, and there's also this idea that goodness equals reward and evil equals punishment that we know is not no. True as well. That's a cognitive distortion that we have. Yeah, this mental fallacy that uh, if I do good, I will be rewarded. Uh, those who are evil will receive punishment. Uh, and, you know, there's plenty of rich assholes and plenty of poor people who are saints. Uh, and so that, that equation does not ring true. Uh, so yeah, uh, that that's a, a pretty good um, way, and I think I like that he used Seneca to, to try and convey that. Do you have another uh, example, or do you want to move to a different um, section? Sure. Uh, so Epicurus, okay. another one of the, the ancients, his section is Constellation for Not Having Enough Money. God, I need that. <laughs> and so at the heart of Epicurean, Epicureanism is the thought that we are as bad at intu intuitively answering what will make me happy as what will make me healthy. The answer which most rapidly comes to mind is liable to be faulty. Okay. So, yeah, do you, do you have any 
comment or thoughts on that thoughts on that idea I think our our initial gut reactions to the things that will make us happy and healthy a lot of times uh, like he says aren't true um, am I going to be rich is money what's going to make me rich and um, I, I think right now we're looking in in the news and seeing Elon Musk it seems like he's having a breakdown at some level uh, <laughs> I, I know nothing about this so you know Elon, you know Elon I Musk do. I know who Elon Musk um, is he's had a couple uh, public tweets where he almost suggested that they were going to go private they were going to change the status of the company Tesla or SpaceX Tesla. Or, okay um, and I believe in how he said it, um, it, um, it was going to bring the federal government into, did he influence the stock valuation? Because if they take it private, they have to buy out the public investors. Gotcha. And if they say, well, we've got, we've got <clears throat> funding sure. and backers that are going to help us take this public or take it pr back to private, that means that. Um, everybody who owns stock is going to get bought out. Right. So it's stock. It's manipulation. Stock market maybe. manipulation. Yeah. So he's uh -huh. he's uh, been under investigation, or they've been looking at this, and his Eesh. his board um, has been just riding him mercilessly. He disclosed that he's been taking Ambien to help sleep, uh, and so he's Ambien tweets. He's Ambien tweets. Uh, he was on um, a podcast, a show with Joe Rogan. Uh, recently, where he smoked pot uh -huh. live on air uh -huh. uh, and was videotaped doing it, and that's legal in California. Legal in California, but several of his employees <laughs> who had been fired for smoking pot uh, for right. a vague drug I could policy see that, uh, were very livid. Uh, at, that at, makes sense. Yeah, so he's been having having the issues, but he's a billionaire. Sure, the man has billions of dollars, and you would think, well, if you achieve all this financial success. Your life will be, you'll be much happier. You'll be right. um, content beyond your years. And we, we find that to not be true. Uh, and so for me as an individual to say, if only I had more money or if only I did this, I would be healthier, wealthier and wiser. Uh, we are seeing more and more that that does not play out. Yes. Do you feel like the, that is that a lot? <clears throat> is that a, is that something that you've thought during your life that the, the, the money wealth equals happiness or success or fulfillment or whatever the case may be. I think anytime I thought it and caught myself thinking, well, if I just was richer, I'd be happier. I can reject it logically and say, well, I know that's not true, but I think in the things that I pursue, and in the things I put my time and effort into is trying to bring me more money, is trying to bring me more academic and career success. Um, I'm putting myself through a, a master's program to um, be a, a therapist and hopefully be able to charge clients and make money uh, or to be a college professor and be able to have tenure or uh, be able to make money and have a solid career. But I think in the things that I gain true contentedness from, what can I derive my pleasure and my satisfaction in life from, 
it's in these interpersonal relationships that I have. It's in being able to sit around a table and eat pizza with friends, be able to sit over a $30 glass of scotch. <laughs> and Right, it's, it's money. <laughs> that's money. Well, no, but I, I think it's the, the time and the, the value of the relationships I have where I get, where I know I get uh, true satisfaction and happiness from that is not always bared out in how I prioritize my time. I don't make a lot of, I don't consciously make a lot of time to be with friends. Um, more of my conscious time goes to Facebook and to watching Netflix and um, wasting time even when deep down I know that's not what really makes me happy. Right. Yeah, I, I've got. I think in our society, in our culture, in the United States of America, it's easy for us to fall into this trap of money, success equals happiness. In a way that maybe in other places, that's not the case, right? In other other societies, um, so I think of like. <clears throat> the Norwegian countries where they have a, a, a social safety safety net, the Scandinavian countries where they have a social safety net and they don't feel the need or they don't have the need to work all the time or just in Europe in general. In um, it seems like in other countries as well, the other things are more important. I don't know how unique it is to the United States. Uh, this this idea of money equals success, but it seems like there's a direct correlation. And what Epicurus would say is that the things that are natural and necessary for happiness are friends, freedom, and thought. Right? And where I've gotten mixed up in the past is when I felt like I did not have freedom and believed that money would get me there. Right? Money if, would buy you freedom? Money would buy me freedom. Okay. Right? Because I wouldn't have to work for anyone I could do whatever I wanted if I had enough money and so I guess that's the question is if money can for me that's what one interesting question is can money buy freedom Epicurus said that neither natural nor necessary are fame and power he found those to be causes of unhappiness yeah because they're not natural um to be famous I don't think there were famous cavemen like oh there goes there, there goes Ugg. He has the the giant club, and he's been able sure. to. Get, I mean, there's never been that many people that were either of those things, right? Yeah, famous or powerful. That's been always been a small minority of people. Yeah, I think that concept um, doesn't bear at all into is that person fulfilled? Is that person? content in their life um, and I think when we start trying to acquire fame and power we start having more and more issues in our life because we're sacrificing things that are vital to us I think this plays out in every book and movie and TV show about somebody who's trying to acquire fame and power is by the way look at all the other shit you're going to have to go through to get fame and power and then when you get there what do you really have Sure. Uh, I think uh, there was an HBO show called Entourage. It was right. A really great show. Yes. But he had fame. He had fame. He right. and, and money. Uh, 
but the only Vince Vince yeah Vince had lots of money he was a famous celebrity he was a famous actor but who did he I think the only thing that kept him sane and kept him grounded was that he was surrounded by friends right uh he had turtle he had Ari oh god Ari mm-hmm. uh but I mean he had people in his life that kept him grounded mm-hmm. um but without that without these insulating factors um just fame and power don't bring you what you really want. Sure. Yeah. And I, I've never been interested in fame, but there have been times in my life that power on a much more limited, a, m- a much more localized level has been important to me. And that has led to not being very happy. So in an effort to help Josh Buss uh, never acquire the fame that he s- says he doesn't seek, we are now relabeling the, the Help Yourself podcast with Joshua Wolf and guest. <laughs> right. I don't think that there's any any danger of me achieving fame through a podcast. Even the most f- famous of podcasters. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. You can be. You too can be podcast famous. Right. So let's let's move on. Let's talk about uh, Montaigne. Okay. He's one that I find really interesting. I had trouble trying to figure out exactly what Depotan was was saying what did in you this get? one. What did you get from this one? Yeah. So let me look up the name of the chapter real quick. The Constellation for Inadequacy. So Montaigne was this 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 noble or or bourgeois i'm not sure ex- exactly if he had a title uh-huh. or um guy during the early renaissance in france who decided to write memoirs basically detailed all the parts of his life rather than just talking about the high his high-minded ideals and and thoughts and things like that. He thought that it was important to talk about the the struggles, the 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 things that are common to all of us and our bodies, not just our minds, right? So he would talk about indigestion and farting and <laughs> um, impotence and uh, things like things like that and. I think this, what he was saying was, or again, what Debotan interprets him as saying is that these are not things for us to be ashamed of in the way that we are, because it's common to the human experience. And so this idea that we have all this shame often surrounding our bodies and the things our bodies do, bodily functions, um, sexual drives, is ridiculous. And I, I appreciate this. This is maybe to me the most uh, non-straightforward, the, the, the least expected of the lessons in the book. If you could distill down the lesson, the lesson that this section is trying to, um, to convey, uh, maybe in a few words or, 
uh, a short anecdote that was shared. What would be kind of the heart, the the essential part of this um, that you were able to find? The genital activities of mankind are so natural, so necessary, and so right. What have they done to make us never dare to mention them without embarrassment and to exclude them from serious orderly conversation? We're not afraid to utter the words kill, thieve, or, or betray, but those others we only dare to mutter through our teeth. So the message I get out of this is dick jokes are good. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Every, every person... Oh, well, I'm, science has stripped me of the ability to say this, but everybody came from a penis. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we are unable to talk freely and openly about uh, sex, uh, which is a, a natural part of human life um, from the very first person until the last person on earth, sex will have been involved in their life, either starting it or ending it. <laughs> right. And in an effort to embrace the spirit of Montaigne, I, will tell I, was, I was planning, I was planning on sharing like some personal things and, you know, letting go of that shame in this podcast, but then I had lunch with my parents today and we discussed the podcast and I realized that they listened to the podcast. And so I've decided not to share <laughs> the, those things. Right. Uh, but I feel like my having the willingness to do that is enough. Right. Yes. I think, um, and I am grateful for your reticence, um, but I think... Don't shame me. No, no. I, said, no, I feel like you, what you're saying there is I'm glad you're not telling me about your sexual experiences. Don't shame me. I will not, I will not shame you, Josh. Don't make me feel inadequate. You are not inadequate. You are enough. You are satisfactory for who you are in this life, uh, and your wife loves you for it. <laughs> for being adequate? For being adequate. Uh, I don't know about that. You might want to talk to her before you go labeling me adequate. <laughs> um, so, you know, he talks about not just the body, but the culture and the ideas that we hold on to this idea that our culture is superior in some ways to other. And really, that's just a cover for the inadequacy that we might feel if when we're encountered with something that's different from what we understand, right? From, um, he has a whole section about his travels, Montaigne's travels through Europe, all these things he saw and the way people from different countries criticized other people from countries. Okay. So, so uh, throughout the book, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the criticisms that people have had of the book. Um, what didn't you like about this book? What's um, maybe what was your least favorite section, or uh, maybe a general criticism of um, what you found was a, an overreach or uh, an inadequacy of the book? <laughs> um, yeah. So again, I don't know enough about philosophy to make any philosophical critiques of this book. The the Botan was dumbing it down, watering it down. He was drawing conclusions that aren't there from philosophy. The second half of the book, I did find, I, I could see, even without knowing enough about philosophy, 
then maybe the lessons that he's trying to derive from Montaigne, but especially Schopenhauer and Nietzsche are Nietzsche. Yes. Nietzsche. <laughs> uh, Nietzsche are contrived that they're, that those weren't really the, um, that maybe those were small, insignificant parts of their philosophy and their lives that he was overreaching. Nietzsche tried to explain some grander idea and, uh, Alain de Botton only pulled out a very small fragment and blew it up larger than, right. than Nietzsche expected or was trying to convey. Yeah. So the, that section is the constellation for difficulties is Nietzsche mm-hmm. and it, De Botton's main point there is that that Nietzsche believed the constellation for difficulty was that as long as we're striving and as long as we're trying that the failures that we encounter are that's that's fine and that's right and that's fulfilling the the lesson is that any any person who's done anything great has failed many times and so it's an idea of 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 keeping on going right despite the difficulties and nietzsche was a uh philosopher who achieved n- almost no success during his sane life he actually had syphilis and spent the last maybe 12 years of his life in an insane asylum right during which his books began to sell in which he was not able to appreciate the um the the success they had achieved but he despite his lack of success emphasized that just striving was what made a what made a person. Okay. Any other final thoughts on the book uh, as we wrap up the show for today? Not everything which makes us feel better is good for us, and not everything which hurts us may be bad. That's the last line of the book. I think that's the the essence of what he he believes Nietzsche was saying. Who knows? We we don't. Yeah. Um, but I like that. I like that line. I I like this book. Did you like this book? I did. I thought it was, um, you know, while it was heady and cerebral, it wasn't an easy read for me. Um, it's not one of those that just flows like a a fiction novel, and you you get real deep into it, and like, wow, I really want to read what's in the next chapter. This this was something that I had to to work to read, but as I worked to read it, and as I was able to draw understanding from um, the author's interpretations and extrapolations from what the philosophers were trying to say, I felt that it did add knowledge and understanding to me, and I think that's what these books are about. Um, is it going to fix my life? No. Are any of these books going to fix my life? No. But does it add meaning and value and understanding to how I see myself and how I see the world? Yes. 
Uh, and for that, I am grateful. All right. Yeah, and I want to apologize to li- the listeners if we butchered Debotan's butchering of philosophy. This is like double, double butchering butch- of philosophy. Uh, We've taken a nice prize. We're not philosophy students. No. We've taken a nice prize cow. Debotan trimmed him into nice, fine steaks, which we ran through the grinder, and we've now got some beef patties. (laughs) We do. So, I don't know. Go to the source. Read Socrates. Socrates didn't write anything. Read Plato's accounts of Socrates. Read Nietzsche Nietzsche, if you want to. I don't think that you're going to get through it, most of you, but try it if you want to. Good luck. We love you. Thank you for joining us again. Um, we're, we're so grateful to each and every one of our listeners. Uh, if you have thoughts on this episode, thoughts on philosophy and its applications for life, go to Facebook. Join us at Help Your Shelf on Facebook. Leave some comments. Leave some feedback for us. Uh, we'd live, love to know your thoughts. Uh, and again, my name is Joshua Wolf. My name is Josh Buss. And this has been Help Your Shelf. As always, our exit music is Move Like the Ocean by Wildlight. Uh, We'd like to thank everyone for joining us again. Bye-bye.
Thousand roads and not one right way. 